So it is a it is a marvelous thing and an amazing thing to me that I am able to talk to everyone this morning. It is not within the realm of my experience to find a trio of men whose love exceeds all other concerns. So my honor is to the elders that God has put over us who are willing to love in this fashion. They don't know a single word of what I'm going to say. So, Father, I pray your benefit. I pray your bread. I don't have to beg. You give good things. You lavish upon us, as Jay has said. You lavish upon us. It is not that we are in any danger of having thoughts too lofty about you. We are in danger of being overwhelmed by thoughts that fall too short. So far below who you really are. So I thank you for every good thing that you lavish upon our lives. In Jesus' name. So as Tim was, as Tim shared, and it wasn't just that one particular message. When I'm listening to Jay or listening to Tim, listening to any message, if I go visiting somewhere, thoughts stir. And I like that. I like the fact that we think about things that we hear. And the Spirit speaks to us. And so when it came to this idea of the wrath of God, questions began to form in my mind. And we'll step through these questions together and pose some potential answers from God's Word and from His Spirit. So there's a text in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In one of my favorite translations of the New Testament, the Phillips translation, J.B. Phillips was a pastor in England during World War II and as a way of comforting his fellowship during the bombings of London, he interpreted in a paraphrase the New Testament. He was a Greek scholar. And Phillips translates that same verse as now the holy anger of God is disclosed from heaven against the godlessness and evil of those men who render truth dumb and inoperative by their wickedness. Same same verse in a different translation. God's wrath. That kind of stuck with me. God's wrath. God's wrath. Man, that sounds cranky. That sounds tough. The word rendered wrath in the NASB rendering of that scripture and holy anger in the Phillips is a Greek word, orge. And it's found 36 times in 34 verses in the New Testament. Quite a few. Five times in the Gospels. One time it comes out of the mouth of Jesus. Just the word, orge. And when Jesus spoke about it, it was in the 23rd verse of the 21st chapter of Luke, And it was in the context of the end times, when in Jerusalem you were going to flee to the mountains because of the wrath, orge, of non-believers. 
the wrath of the Gentiles. You were going to get out of Dodge and head for the hills. And I point that out because there is a tremendous value in the Gospels for me personally. When I was a teenager, it came upon me at one particular point, I'm going to read the Bible. And I grabbed this black book of my father's. And like any book, I start at the beginning. And I'm reading in Genesis. And I'm pressing on. I'm reading in Exodus. And I get mired down in Leviticus. And I get mired down to a standstill in Numbers. And I close that book half from boredom, half from this is one angry God. And I'm not sure how much I like this guy. And I'm closing the book because I'm not reading anymore. And the day would come when all of a sudden in my Christian life as a believer, I began to understand the value of the Gospels. Understand the value that Jesus came to reveal the Father to me. And I was struck by the fact that even John the Baptist said, I didn't recognize this guy. If it wasn't for the fact that God in his spirit told me upon whom you see this dove come down and remain upon, I'm not sure I'd I'd have recognized him. You had a lot of people who knew the Old Testament inside out. And yet Jesus was a surprise. He was a surprise. And yet he is the fullness of the Father in bodily form. Fullness of the Godhead. So I really began a process of interpreting the rest of the New Testament and interpreting the Old Testament through this lens of the Gospels. Because I found that it was better for me to avoid ascribing something that didn't sit right with me to the character of God until he made me understand it. And there's a bunch I still don't understand. Than to just deftly assume something that just didn't sit right. Some things I just have to wait and see. So I interpret things personally. I look through them through this lens of Jesus the best I know how. The phrase, the wrath of God, appears only once in the Gospels as a phrase. The wrath of God appears only once. And it came out of the mouth of John the Baptist. It comes in John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Then again in the Phillips, the man who believes in the Son has eternal life. The man who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. He lives under the anger of God. Still sounds scary to me. So as I was listening to Tim, and Tim I think knows that, and I explained to Jay too, I am visually distracted. So when I listen, I put my head down and close my eyes. It may look like I'm asleep or that I'm bored, but I'm listening. I'm focusing with my ears. And four questions went through my mind as Tim continued to talk. And I I love Tim's preaching. I love Jay's preaching. Question number one, what is God's wrath? What the heck is that thing? What or whom is it directed against? What is its purpose? 
And how can wrath flow from a God who is love? Those four things. What is God's wrath? What or whom is it directed against? What is its purpose? And how can wrath flow from a God who is love? So I began to wrestle at home, what is God's wrath? Taking some of of what I heard and asking God to help me. What is God's wrath? Well, in our text verse in Romans, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against, and Tim did a great job in this, all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And in the Phillips, against the godlessness and evil. So Phillips describes it as the holy anger of God. The holy anger of God against a bunch of stuff. So God's wrath simply was, for me, the holy anger of God. Okay, I got that done. God's holy anger. What is that like? And I began to think of my own anger and things that I have experienced in life. And human anger seems to me so often to be shot through with impurities. It's got this stuff in it. It's got envy in it. Resentment in it at times. Jealousy. Bitterness. All sorts of impurities. But God's anger is holy. It's pure. It is good. Good anger. So God's wrath is the holy anger of God, this good thing coming out of him. Because there's nothing bad can come out of him. It's good stuff. What or whom is God's wrath directed against? So there is this two-sided coin there for me. There is a what side and a whom side. What side? Ungodliness, unrighteousness, godlessness, evil. In short, sin. God's wrath is a good thing poured out against sin. Makes sense to me. The whom side got a little tougher. The whom side. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In the Phillips... Those men and women who render truth dumb and inoperative by their wickedness. The whom side? Those who don't believe in the Son, Jesus Christ. If I go back to John the Baptist in the Gospel, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son. Interesting. He didn't say, he who does not believe in the Son. All through Scripture we find this synonym, this relationship. Obedience, belief. Disbelief, disobedience. You can only obey when you believe. You only believe when you obey. So there is a persistent and intentional pursuit of sin by fallen people. Who are these sinful people? The next thing that struck me. Okay. If the wrath of God is his holy anger, good stuff, against bad stuff, sin, and this sin is bound up in a carrier, and I thought again of Tim, 
in his body, there lies something that God doesn't want there. He carries inside of him something that needs to get out of him. And we all have that situation for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So, if we were to keep on reading in chapter 1 of, of, uh, of Romans in the Phillips, there is this laundry list of this evil, this, this wickedness, this unrighteousness. They became filled with wickedness, rottenness, greed, and malice. Their minds became steeped in envy, murder, quarrelsomeness, deceitfulness, and spite. They became whispers behind doors, stabbers in the back, God-haters. They overflowed with insolent pride and boastfulness, and their minds teemed with diabolical invention. They scoffed at duty to parents, they mocked at conscience, recognized no obligations of honor, lost all natural affection, and had no use for mercy. What a list. And you say to yourself, as I did, man. That's bad stuff. I'm glad I'm not like that. And then Romans 2 hits me with this incredible, blessed truth. Now, Michael, if you feel inclined to set yourself up as a judge of those who sin, let me assure you, whoever you are, that you are in no position to do so. For at whatever point you condemn others, you automatically condemn yourself since you, the judge, commit the same sins. And I remember the first time, well, it probably wasn't the first time, it was probably the 201st time, I looked at that and read that, and it stopped me cold. I commit the same sins. Who are these sinful people? People like you and like me. People like you and like me. In 1 Timothy, in the first chapter, the 15th verse, Paul says it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. What a blessed truth. When we understand, I am the biggest sinner I personally know. When we come to that truth and we say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners, man. Because it leaves absolutely no room for judging or condemning someone else. No room whatsoever. I may not have all the details right, but I heard this story once. I Googled it to try and find out, you know, confirm everything, you know, but, but I couldn't quite find it. But I think it's true. There was a trial being conducted when some of Israel's finest had finally captured, I believe it was Adolf Eichmann. It may have been someone else, but it was a Nazi involved in the, in the death camps. And he was on trial. And they were bringing a Jewish man into the courtroom who was going to testify against him. And as the man entered the courtroom, he locks eyes with Adolf Eichmann. And he pauses, and he's just looking at him. And after a few moments, he faints. 
He falls over and he faints. And he's being interviewed by either Dan Rather or Mike Wallace at a later point in time. And he says to him, Dan Rather says to him, what was it that made you faint? Was it looking into the eyes of pure evil? Someone who was responsible for the death of your parents, for so many of your family? Was it the horror of looking at the face of evil? And the Jewish man said, no. I knew one thing. He was just like me. He was just like me. And the knowledge of that truth made him fall over. What is God's wrath? The holy anger of God. Good stuff. Who is it directed against? A two-sided coin. It's directed against sin, carried by sinful people of a fallen race. Who, if they are blessed enough, understand the truth of chapter 2, verse 1. That we can and are supposed to judge external behavior, the internal heart, and the future condemnation and, and position of the precious soul, God's business. And I know that if I were the only one to be in this physical place, murderer, thief, liar, adulterer, yeah, that would be me. What is the purpose of God's wrath? Man, if it's something good coming out of him, I sure hope it's got a good purpose. I hope it's got a good purpose. Because if it is simply punishment, for punishment's sake, it is a God I do not know. Because as I look and ask myself, is there anything that Jesus ever did that didn't have at its core a redemptive purpose? I know of none. Nothing Jesus ever said, no action he ever took, that after we look and ponder does not have some redemptive purpose to it that I can find. When he goes up to a Pharisee and says, a bunch of Pharisees and says, you hypocrites, you are like a whitewashed tomb. You look good on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead man's bones coming right from a heart full of love for these people. Giving them what they need most. Every time Jesus says or does something, it is spot on to what that individual needs most of all. For some it is a response to, Lord, are you willing to touch me because I'm a leper? You bet I am. You bet I am. Are you willing to heal me because I've had an issue of blood for years and years and years and no doctor can help me? You bet I will. I will show you the heart of the Father. I will show you the heart of the Father. In every conversation, with every utterance, did Jesus not speak words the hearer needed to hear most? God's wrath, His holy anger, has as its goal the redemption of the precious souls 
upon which it is directed and flows from his fierce heart of unrelenting love. A love that will never succumb to seeing his children remain slaves to sin, estranged from their own father. Think, if you will, of being a parent and having a child. And this child, 8 or 10, maybe up to 12, little boy. Good kid most of the time. You get a family pet and lo and behold, when your back is turned, that kid is tormenting this pet with every chance he gets. Just torturing this thing. And as he perseveres, you find two things dwelling up in your heart. I love this kid. And I abhor. I am angry at his cruelty. Those two things streaming forth out of you. And you're bound and determined, I will get this badness out of my child. I will get it out. I will do whatever it takes to get it out. I want my child to be free. God wants his children to be free. There is a man who recently hung himself, I believe this past week, by the name of Castro out in Ohio, who had kidnapped three women and repeatedly raped them over a period of 10 years or so, I believe. And as he was sentenced to life in prison without hope of parole, plus a thousand years, in case he died too quick or something, you know, uh, he hung himself. What is God's remedy? Does God love him? Yeah. If his heavenly Father who created him could get the bad out of him, and if we knew the bad was entirely out of him, would we not rush with our arms to embrace him? I think so. If we understand what God has done for us, this unrelenting, fierce love higher than we can imagine. Yes, fear God's wrath, for God will never, ever, ever cease to love you. Never cease to love you. To bring you close to his Father's heart, that you might live and be joined to him in love. I brought with me my special little Bible. June of 1984. I was at the time, just prior to getting this Bible... I was the manager of computer operations of the corporate data center of Corning Incorporated, a Fortune 500 company. They had sent me to Paris, France to take a lead role in the leasing of equipment for the data center in their France operations, French operations. I, at the age of 31, had been married and divorced three times. many other things I had done to the public at large, to Corning Incorporated at large, this flaming meteor going up through the corporate world. From my perspective, 
an empty guy looking for something to fill that emptiness and finding out that drugs, sex, alcohol, and money, and prestige could not touch that emptiness. Had a young brother who would talk to me about Jesus. And I would say, Mark, I am a Christian. I know God. You are just a hand-waving Jesus freak nutcase. And he pressed on. And he remembers me telling him, you talk to me about Jesus one more time, I will knock you flat. I'll knock you flat. Amen. (laughs) And the day came when I decided, and I had been also diagnosed with an illness. I had been diagnosed with a mental illness. My mother had received shock therapy, all sorts of things. And I had spent a year or two in therapy, taking medication, etc. And please, don't misunderstand me. God has many avenues. And there are folks who have benefited much. In my particular case, my illness was sin. Uh... And so at a particular point in time in 1984, uh, I told the psychiatrist, a very renowned psychiatrist in the area where I come from, we have opened up a thousand doors and shut none. And in my mind, I remember thinking, boy, I've even got this free license to sin because I have heard I can't help it. And man, that was the worst thing that could ever happen to me. So in my heart... I heard something, and I had gone trying to find God. I had gone to a monastery at 2 in the morning trying to find God. I had talked to Catholic priests, and one of them, a young guy that I kind of liked a lot, he said, you know, for me it's, it's, it's Jesus Christ. But if I was a Buddhist, it would be something else. Everybody has to follow their, their own course to God. Didn't help me much. So in June of 1984, hearing something in my mind and heart, Lose all things to find all things. Walk softly and listen to the wind and the trees. That just was going through my mind. I sold everything I owned except one vehicle. And I decided I was going to walk, having been an avid winter backpacker, I was going to walk from New York to the Rocky Mountains. Them suckers are big. They go from the top to the bottom, head towards the setting sun. You can't miss them. Uh, And it would take a long time. And I was out of emotional gas. Boy, I'll tell you, I was out of gas. So I asked my brother, who I was, you know, kept talking to me about Jesus, you know, take my car, which was a a 1980 special edition Indianapolis special turbo Trans Am. Take my car. I want you to have my car. Hang on to this thing for me. I don't know if I'll ever see you again. Take me to my drop-off spot. And so he does. And I get out of the car, and he shoves this little Bible in my face. And I thought for a minute, you fool. (laughs) You know, I'm going to pop you one. But then I didn't know if I'd ever see him again, so I put it in my back pocket. And prior to that day, about a week before, I had gone on a golf outing with my friends, and most of them were in human services, and we did not know how to have a good time without alcohol. And we were playing golf, and I was not totally sober, and I had terribly sprained my ankle. But I'd sold everything, man. I was pretty committed. So as I headed off, took the Bible, shoved it in my pocket, headed down the road, I was walking differently because I had one heck of a sprained ankle. 
and I made it a little over 23 miles that day. Not far when your destination is the Rockies. And I ran out of gas. I was walking differently. Everything hurt. And I was, man, I was broken. I was empty. I sat down beside the Cohocton River in a small town, Addison, New York. And it was uncomfortable because this little Bible was in my pocket. And I pulled it out because I was thinking of going in that river, as I had thought before, of ending my life. Because I had tried everything. And I opened up this Bible and I read what my brother wrote. Trust, in his handwriting, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. My prayer for you, Mike, is that somewhere along this trip, God meets you in a very special way, much greater than you have ever experienced before. I have a deep concern for you, for you have a very special place in my heart. Not a day goes by that I don't think of you. God has given me a promise that you will be healed. May this healing be completed in the days which lie ahead. May this book bring you comfort and strength. Please remember, I'll always be here when you need me. Just a phone call away with love, Mark. And in the back... Every possible phone call or phone number that he had that I could reach him. And he says, with this, you should be able to find me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Christ in him, pleading with me. And it entered my mind, maybe he knew something I did not. Because I was sitting on that rock under the blessed wrath of God. God's wrath flows from his love. And he would not have me comfortable. He would bring me to himself. If it meant something like C.S. Lewis saying, a severe mercy. I walked out on my sons when they were three or four. I walked out on wives. God's wrath, consequences, streaming love, and the only way this child of his could benefit from it. I called my brother Mark. He came to pick me up, and within 48 hours, he's watching his brother get baptized. And he is astounded. He is astounded. I had gone to church. I had met 200 people that had been praying for me and in my parents' pool because I sold everything, so I was 
staying overnight at my parents. In the bottom of that pool, after spending hours in the Word of God with a man who did nothing more but say, let's take John 3.16 and see what that's all about. What happened to God so had to give His only Son? What does believing mean? What's this issue of perishing? So underneath water, I simply said, God, if you are real, make me like these people. Come into my life too, because it is a shambles. And when I came up out of the water, the thing I remember most first is I lost about 20% of my vocabulary. I remember that part. And I went to a bar with my friends that night, and I was not an alcoholic yet, but I was on the way. I was probably drinking 15 or so scotch and waters a week, and I found myself ordering a Coke, which was pretty interesting. And how I viewed my surroundings was massively different. No more pot, no more drugs, and the hole in my heart, God's love. His presence. It was not just some mental thing. It was a comfort and a love and a physical presence. Though you have not seen him, yet you love him. Oh, my word, my word, my word, the love of God. Poured out to me in his wrath to rescue me. The only thing my brother regrets is that Trans Am came back to me. (laughs) And he said... Couldn't God have saved you like two weeks? (laughs) Why did it have to be so fast? The wrath of God is his active love at work in the lives of those created in his image that they might believe in him and be set free of evil. Every man and woman that ever lived. Closing illustration. A little takeoff on Tim's. Would this side of the church please stand? You represent the folks that have come to a choice, a decision in life, to believe what God has to say about himself. Jesus was either the biggest fool that ever lived because he claimed to be God, the Son of God. So he was either a fool or a madman or exactly who he claims to be. So you are representing the folks that have chosen to believe and to obey. This side stand up. You are the folks like me sitting on that rock by the side of the river under the loving wrath of God. Look up. Over top of us is this common roof. It is the canopy over us all of God's love. Amen. Thank you, Lord.